conversation on what it means to be alive. You know how you have those people come in your life and offer you an opportunity that sounds crazy and you take it? And in fact, it is a crazy opportunity. Well, I got into a mess called uh, film production with my friend Yvonne Orlick about six years ago. Yvonne and I met and uh, became fast friends. And out of nowhere, he kind of decided he wanted to make movies. And would I want to come along? (laughs) And come along, I did. We worked together for about six years and uh, made two incredible films. One called Murder of a Cat, which we produced with a director named Sam Raimi. And the other called Pele about the uh, most famous and arguably the greatest athlete ever to exist. And we shot down in Brazil for that film and, and learned a lot about each other, about ourselves, and about how to make a movie. But what I did learn uh, about him specifically is that there is much more to him than just making films. He's one of the most intelligent, thoughtful, and introspective people that I know. And he has lots of excellent things to say about life and how it is lived and how he sees it. Uh, Other than making films, uh, he has a degree in oceanography, and uh, he has a master's degree in fisheries oceanography, and he holds a professional certificate in film production from UCLA. He's a published author on two college textbooks, and uh, he's been around. He's also a graduate of the Second City Hollywood Improv and Sketch Comedy Conservatory. Uh, He's an improv artist, a producer, a comedian, a writer, a scientist, and a deep-feeling and thinking human being. This is Yvonne Orlick. Okay, so guess what just happened? Um, this is Yvonne. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> he just made a, he made an awkward sound with his mouth. <laughs> We're going to just make awkward lip smack sounds in this podcast. Oh, I hate that. One of my pet peeves is when people eat like that. It's the best. It's the I be- mean the worst. It's the worst. So uh, Yvonne and I just went to get coffee. And uh, when you live in L.A., you run into a lot of celebrities. Like, you, you mean you see TV people, or you see people, and you're like, you look at them extra long, because you're like, do I know you? And you're like, yeah, I think so. And then they catch you looking at them, and then it's awkward. But um, occasionally, you run into somebody who matters. <laughs> like, you can run into producers, or TV stars, or movie stars, but then occasionally, you run into somebody who's actually changing the way the world works. Well, today, and, and I'm bringing this up because you and I have totally different responses, and <laughs> I want you to teach me. We're going to get to the question I ask everybody, but today we walked into a coffee shop in Highland Park, Civil Coffee, and Malcolm Gladwell is sitting there. Who's Malcolm Gladwell? Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> <laughs> he's that guy on that one sitcom. <laughs> he's maybe one of the greatest thinkers, of course, and in, 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 uh, New York Times bestseller, and he wrote the, the power uh, of thinking without thinking. thinking. He wrote uh, Outliers. He exactly. wrote the longest tale. That's right. Or the longest tale? Is, Is the, it the longest? Uh, anyway, we know what we're anyway, talking about. He's, he's really important. Um, <laughs> but he's probably one of the thinkers that people might even recognize. I mean, he's a pop pop culture f- philosopher. He's yeah. a pop philosopher. Let's put it that way. A pop philosopher. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. Okay, so we walk in. And I noticed him. I walked in first. I noticed him, and I made weird eye contact with him because I looked at him extra long because I was like, is, oh, yeah. And then I looked away, embarrassed. 
And then you walk up and you're looking at me like, oh my gosh, that's Malcolm Gladwell. And I'm like, yes, it is. Let's get out of here. <laughs> and I said, and let's you, talk to him. Let's talk to him. And I'm like, I can't do that. I can't. Even as we're leaving, you stayed at the door and you're like, come back in and talk to him. <laughs> Invite him to be on the podcast. It, it's just whatever. Well, what's the deal? Okay. But so I'm revealing that I'm terrified of that experience. You, I've known you very well, are not terrified of that experience, which part of what makes you a great producer and part of what makes me... Just scared. <laughs> so what is it? How do you just walk up to people and talk to them? What's that about? How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> You're like freezing up now. You can walk up to Malcolm Gladwell, no problem. <laughs> yeah, I guess you have to remember that he could be anyone, right? You could have yeah, been yeah. on a similar trajectory had you been born and brought up in similar circumstance and have had similar talents, you know, behind the details that most people use to describe who we are behind that is who we actually are. Right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and so behind those things, we're all just people trying to do the best we can. Yeah. And if you allow yourself to see that for a moment, I think you can talk to anybody. I, it's great. I spoke to, um, I spoke to Jennifer Lawrence at a party Mm -hmm. And as a, as a man, I've long been intimidated by approaching women. And the more attractive you find them, the more intimidating the experience. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I just, I've never approached, I don't approach women <laughs> at all. <laughs> Serial monogamous, so I don't ever have to talk to girls. <laughs> that's why. And it's, it's really, that's, I think that's what I try to remind myself of in those moments too. It's behind that is just another person. Behind the persona that we put on them yes. is the person that they are. And you are walking up to, you, you are doing your best to, to see past the persona and just approach the person you know is there somewhere. Yeah. And sometimes the, the people that surround us, when we experience some success, they, they um, encourage us to remember all of these details that aren't us, but what we've done or what we're doing or... <laughs> So they're and, reminding you of uh, the, the movies you've made or the, what all the stuff. And they and many people, and especially in big cities, I think, like L.A., that are so career-driven, um, they also seem to value you for those things rather right. than for who you are behind those things. Right. So how could we have walked up? if we Okay, so now we're back in the coffee shop and we're going to walk up to Malcolm Gladwell. And I am totally intimidated, nervous, scared, because I'm seeing the Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. You are like, it doesn't matter. Or, you know, you're, how would you approach him without approaching him? How would you approach the person instead of the persona? <laughs> um, I guess it's, it's difficult not to bring up the persona because you know, that's what you know. That's about how you him, know him. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but what the persona means to you is personal. And oh. so if I were an author or if I'm a musician or in my real life case, if I'm making movies and my work affected somebody else and they came up to tell me how it affected them, I think that has tremendous value to the creator. Right. And I think it reminds them or, in, or if it was me, it would remind me of why I do what I do. Right, right. And so it's it, appreciated. 
yeah, I think um, if you if you go up to a famous actor and you ask for a photo, <laughs> that's a bit different. Mm-hmm. And I I don't mean to judge. I I've done it before. My parents do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's different than approaching them to express how their work affected you and what it means to you and how the way they live their lives is empowering you to live your life the way that you want to or hope right. to. That's great. Cause then it's person to person, not persona to persona. Yeah. When we were, um, shooting, uh, the movie we shot in Brazil, <laughs> Pele, uh, I got to spend a lot of time with one of the stars of the movie, say Georgie. And he and I went to dinner one day mm-hmm. and I'll never forget we were eating, or maybe it was lunch, we, you know, we were eating, and he is a huge celebrity, of course, in Brazil. Uh, people in the United States know him and have seen him and are familiar with him, but in Brazil, he is like, you know, he's like Tom Cruise walking down the street or John Mayer or some huge music-slash-actor yeah. star. So everywhere we went, people were looking and people were approaching or were not approaching or staring or, you know, feeling like me in Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and we were at this restaurant, and someone walked over and interrupted the meal and said, can I have a picture with you? And he's very gracious. And mm-hmm. so he said, I'm, I'm eating right now, but when I'm done, I will come to you and take a picture. That's so, very nice. Very nice. So he finished and he walked over to the table. I don't think I've told you this. He walked over to the table and he, he said, Hey, I'm done. Let's take a picture. And they said, no, no, no. They were embarrassed. They said, no, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. And we get back in the car and he was furious. Mm. He was angry and he told me, because I asked him, I said, what's the deal You know, when you're famous? He said, he said exactly what you said. He said, it was clear that the table, who no longer wanted a picture, now that I was, now it was on my time, they didn't want a picture. He goes, it was clear they just wanted a photo mm-hmm. to put on Facebook and show they met, a, they saw a famous person. He goes, if it's a real fan, they mm-hmm. would have taken the picture with me because it would yeah. have meant something to them. He goes, and what his point of view was, he, like you're saying, he never has a problem mm. with a real fan coming up to him and, and saying, your music means so much to me. I'd love a picture for keepsake, you, you, whatever it is. He, he told me he will stop every single time. But he is frustrated mm. with, with the selfie culture and putting it up on Facebook and just being like, look how cool I am. <laughs> and, and that was the experience. But, but he, he was experiencing much of what you're saying. Yeah. Which, again, I think asking for and taking a picture with a celebrity feels cool. Right. And I don't mean to judge that. It's just from the other person's perspective. Mm-hmm. You're not really adding value to their day. You're kind of taking. Yeah, yeah. And that's what can be frustrating to the recipient when someone just wants to take from you. A lot, and, over and over and And over. I don't think the people asking for these photos are thinking that way. No. It's just a spur of the moment. Oh, my God, this would be so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have the same instinct. Mm-hmm. My instinct is to run away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, that's, that's great. So what does it mean to be alive? <laughs> Given the celebrity of it all, what does it mean to be alive? Ah, to be alive. You know you're asking a biologist, right? <laughs> yes, you, you, your story does go, begins in the science world and comes into the art world. So yeah, what, what, what does it mean to be alive then? How does your understanding of biology inform what it means to be alive? And... 
You know, you but think... you also spent time in some wacko worlds too. <laughs> so I know who I'm asking here. See, I, I this I happen to know this guest better than other guests. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in biology and in science, philosophy of science, if you get into it, you'd find you'd be surprised at how hard that question actually is <laughs> to answer. Yes, yeah. to to have a definitive answer for. And why is that? What do you mean? <laughs> I mean that often, or the most accepted way to define what is life in the sciences is to come up with a list of characteristics. Mm-hmm. And then if you can check off those boxes, then it's alive. And if you can't, then it's not. So what, what would be on that list? Like brain function, heart function? There are some things that are more obvious than others. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for example, people are alive. Yeah, yeah. And um, we would accept that stones are not. Right. Um, however, and the, the list of these characteristics, there's different versions of this list. But the one that comes to mind starts with organization. So to be alive, you must be an organized system, whether you're multicellular or single cell. And if you consider a crystal, like a, a rock quartz, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely organized. So first box is checked. <laughs> the Organized meaning the molecules, the, the things that make it up seem yes. to have some sort of structure. That's right. Okay. And um, following that, though, you the second item on the list that comes to mind is metabolism. So that's where the rock would stop being alive. qualifying as being alive. Right. <laughs> but we would continue. Um, there's other characteristics like um, reproduction and um, reaction to stimuli. So if your environment changes, do you change in some way to reflect? Does that change affect you? Would a rock check that box? Potentially. I right. mean, it depends on rain and... the type of stimulus. Yeah, right. So it would, potentially, right. <laughs> depending on the rock structure. But where this gets really into a gray area um, is viruses. I think this is very interesting. But other other characteristics are um, maintaining homeostasis, Which so is having the ability to maintain internal conditions within a range, having some stability. Okay. One of the homeostatic characteristics of mammals is maintaining a certain range of internal body temperature, for example. Right. Um, but when you look at a virus, a virus doesn't really have, to my understanding, its own metabolism when it's out in the world it certainly can't reproduce without a host right so this is a gray area that many philosophers of science explored or have explored continue to explore different people will say a virus is alive a virus is not alive Hmm. (laughs) so what does it mean to be alive um i mean it's a it's a question that's been asked for a long long time if you go back to the very beginnings of recorded philosophy you get um the greeks saying something like to be alive is to be animated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you being able to move or to yeah exp- or express not necessarily i mean i mean you get you you are fast forwarding to more modern philosophy of i think therefore i am type mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. um but yeah being animated and i think it's also possible, and this bounces on religion a little bit, mm-hmm. that um, life or to be alive 
is not reducible. You can't actually take that apart. It is its own thing. That's oh. also possible. What, what do you mean? Like it's a energy? It's a... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that could be the case. And there's philosophical arguments in science for that and against that as well. But right. for in a more practical sense, maybe, and more focused on probably what you usually mean no, <laughs> when no. you ask this question. There's, there is no usual. <laughs> I'm just cataloging. <laughs> um, I, I think animated is close. I think it's useful. I think um, to experience is my version. Mm. Okay. And oh. it doesn't have to mean self-aware. Um, you, you don't have to be aware that you're experiencing something to experience it. But if you're experiencing something, you're certainly alive. Right. That's great. Okay. Oh. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's my, I mean, my first response was yes. And then I thought about a rock <laughs> who is, but, but so what does it mean to experience something then? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> or another podcast. But what does it mean to experience something then? Um, well, in, again, going to a practical sense of us humans in our societies and interactions with, it, it means, I think it means, to experience something is to be affected by it in some way. Even if you're not letting yourself be emotionally affected. Right. If, if a light shines on you and it doesn't upset you, it doesn't make you happy, it's just a light, but you can detect it, you've experienced it, you're experiencing. Great, great. Right. So there's something about being alive then in, in this point of view that is happening in relationship to other things. I would say. Like in a greater I mean, organization. I mean, something. without that, it's so hard to define. Right, right. <laughs> it's, um, it's trying to define light without dark. Right, of course, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and personally, I think if you want to add meaning and purpose to life and being alive with meaning, right. um, then you must experience with meaning. Okay, what's that mean? <laughs> Tell me the um, meaning. I mean, I think I have an understanding of what that is, but I'd love to hear what you think. That's where that's where it allowing everything that is affecting you on a surface level to affect you on a deeper level comes into place. Mm -hmm. And you start to develop attachments and have real responses that are beyond um beyond the automated, beyond the persona. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and including, but also beyond that, yeah. Beyond that persona, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what is, um, what about you? What is the persona and what's behind the persona for you? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, <clears throat> That's a persona. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think the persona evolves and the how environment. Would you, how would you define your persona right now? Maybe you can help me, but yeah. um, growing up, mm -hmm. I would say I was very introverted mm -hmm. and I would never approach a stranger, mm -hmm. let alone a celebrity right. or a girl that I liked. That was impossible. Just any stranger was, it was just too much. Mm -hmm. I was, so I was very introverted and very much inside of my head all the time. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, I think that started to change, and it was very conscious. It was a very conscious decision. You worked at making that change. Yes. So I 
I guess we're going back to where we started this conversation, but mm -hmm. I started to make myself talk to people. Now, why? Why, were, why did you do that? There must have been something discontent. Or you must have felt some sort of discontent. Yeah, because it's, it's only through connection that we can really find meaning. Mm -hmm. And I think, anyway, um, I'm sure there's, there's a Buddhist argument for inner piece that uh, doesn't necessarily include connection with other people. I'm not really sure. Yeah, but we but, wouldn't know because they <laughs> haven't connected with us to tell us that. So. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not at a Buddha level that that right. works for me. Right, <laughs> right. So I find meaning through connection. And when you're so introverted, um, you start to lack that meaning. Right. You start to, I think it's true what people say that you end up regretting the things you don't do. Mm -hmm. much more often than the things you do. Right. <laughs> and so being unable to talk to all the people that I wanted to talk to started filling me with repeated experience of regret. And I decided to change that. I decided that um, what I have to say doesn't necessarily have any more value than what anybody else has to say, but it doesn't necessarily have any less. Mm-hmm. And, and I started to think about approaching people the way that we talked in the very beginning of this conversation, which is, yes, they seem unapproachable, but that's only because I'm not seeing them. I'm seeing what we know about them. Mm. Wow, that's great. How has that informed what you do today as a producer? Well, <laughs> I don't think that it's a secret that there's some egos at play yeah. um, in, in Hollywood. Um, so it's really easy to get caught up in that and start reacting to it. You sometimes have to try to see past the, the outer surface, the ego that is complaining or pushing or the ego and the people you're working with. Yes. Yeah. Or pulling away and see what it actually means. And if you can get there, not only can you potentially get the result you're looking for in practical terms, but also you don't allow necessarily that outer shell that the person is um, throwing on you to affect you in the same way. Mm -hmm. Because you know that's just the surface. Right. You know that that's not their real, necessarily their deepest truth that they're throwing at you, that you are, depending on the situation, not good enough, or you're just not enough, or you've done something horribly wrong, or you're not appreciating them enough, or whatever it is that is one level underneath what they're saying. Mm -hmm. If you go more than one level underneath... I think, again, we're all kind of the same. Right. Or at least we have so much more in common than we do on the surface. So in practical terms, now, you know, you and I both in, you have worked with some egos. We have. <laughs> some big and, egos. And back then, I was, I'm, you know, th this is all a work in progress yeah, for, all, for all of us. But back then, <clears throat> I felt... Um, Five or six years ago. Yes. Yeah. I felt that um, you were much more adept 
at this than I. Dealing with the ego. Mm. <laughs> and and seeing past that and through the to the person and also achieving the result that the practicality of the business requires mm -hmm. uh, with that person. And so, as you know, <laughs> we would split some of those responsibilities. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Then I'm, I'm, what I find now is um, I've learned a lot from that. Mm -hmm. And the harder those times were, the more they remind me going forward of those lessons. Yeah. What is it? What is it about Hollywood that that brings out? I mean, I like to joke. I'm like the the thing that brings out the worst in people are getting on an airplane, <laughs> driving, <laughs> driving. That's one of them, definitely. Driving the, and traffic, driving yeah. and traffic, and getting on an airplane and fighting for overhead space, um, and and Hollywood. Hmm. What, what, what is it about Hollywood in your in your experience of it, especially coming from another space where there's also egos in the medical field? Of course, I mean, course. everyone who's listening is like, "Yeah, well, you don't know my industry." <laughs> It's just yeah. a human condition, I understand. But there is something unique about dealing with high power and, mm. and lots uh, people with a lot of creativity, a lot of power, a lot of money, yeah. and and taking a lot of risk all at the same time. And so, um, what has been your observation of of these egos that? That, that stop us because it takes a certain amount of ego to do it to say it does. hey I, what I've done is good I'm going to make this movie because I know I'm good and I'm going to do it like wh what's the difference between that and, and the stuff that becomes a hindrance and where does it come from well confidence and belief in your own talent mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have to turn into the dark side of ego <laughs> right, right but one of the things that leads us there and we're all susceptible to it is the people around us. So in order to preserve the confidence of the artist and also in hopes that that artist will be very successful and um, bring everyone around them for along for the ride, mm -hmm. I think it's very um, tempting for people around an artist to be exceedingly complimentary. And to become mm. yes people. Mm -hmm. And when your environment continues to relentlessly tell you how amazing you are, you start to believe it. Mm -hmm. It's just so easy and we're all susceptible to it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big part of it. And Which then, actually doesn't make the artist better. No. It actually makes them <laughs> worse at their I, job. I think that um, challenging an artist makes them better. Yeah. And um, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging their talent, mm -hmm. but acknowledging their talent, unless it's a crisis of confidence that's specifically preventing their growth, then it's not what they need. Right. Okay. I see. So if, if you're dealing with a, uh, a new writer, a new actor, a new director, um, or, or a, a new, uh, a wardrobe head or a new set, there's many artists that go into a film. It's not, yes. we, we tend to think of one or two of them, but Everyone on that film is an artist in some way and have worked very hard to get where they are. What you're saying is unless there is a crisis in their own belief in, in their abilities, mm. then simply complimenting them for the sake of that can actually be detrimental to their work. I think so because great art doesn't come from a place of comfort, right? Right. It, it comes from pushing your own boundaries and expanding your comfort zone. And it's that process that will 
inspire the artists to come up with something greater than they could have than any of us could have conceived um, cold right right it's this this energy of chaos of trying to push the boundary and as soon as we make the artist so comfortable that where they've gotten to is already good enough then you've taken away the so. process that created that greatness in the first place right right because <laughs> as you know very well it's really about the process mm -hmm. and the process doesn't always yield the same result but we get better at the process and we become more consistent right and that's that's not just true for acting and that's not just true for writing I think that's true for just about everything. For what's it mean to be alive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah. exactly, and for our daily lives. The way we approach our day, mm -hmm. it won't always, if we approach our day in a more positive way, it won't always flawlessly lead us to a happy afternoon. <laughs> right. It won't bring joy every time. But if we do it consistently, we will more often than not have that result. Right. Especially if we find pleasure in that process. Exactly. And that's part of what um, I think our journey is, is from an initial misconception <clears throat> that I think is very common, especially in maybe my generation and the generation after me. Are you saying your generation as opposed to mine? Our generation. <laughs> I'm not that much older. I mean, in the Western modern world, right, right, right. where things are so accessible and so easy to obtain, we start to obsess and with this consumerism, and we start to become um, to identify and define our own worth, our own value, based on what we have and what we've accomplished. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those are all results. Mm -hmm. So the more we focus on those results, the more empty I think our self-worth, as great as it feels in the short term, is in the long term. Right. Whereas when we learn to value process, and I'm very much in the early stages of this journey myself. Yeah, no, I mean, we all, um, yeah. But identifying it is the first step. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you learn to identify your self-worth by the processes that you choose to have then nothing first of all nothing can take that away from you mm -hmm. no circumstance that changes can change that but then secondly that's actually much closer to who you are than just looking at what you have or what you've done right right and in in our case we worked together on some movies this one in particular was exceptionally challenging mm -hmm. and didn't necessarily have the end financial results for everyone that everyone wanted. We didn't have the distribution that we're all satisfied with. So if you look at the end result, it often feels like we did not succeed. Right. But if you focus instead on how we acted and the process we had along the way, you can't really take that away. I mean, you know, the, yeah, the, that, that, the, it was a film called Pele, which is a great film. <laughs> and we and were very proud of and very proud the of movie. The, the movie right? itself is amazing, um, but it was a difficult film to make. It was a very difficult film to make. And um, we aren't 
in control of a lot of things. Right. But we were in control of how we behaved and reacted throughout the process. Right. I made many mistakes. Yeah, we all, me too. Yeah. But they all came from the place that I can still be proud of. Right. And the mistakes that were made were made with the best intention that you can. <laughs> is, that, is that a fair thing to say? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to avoid in this moment the uh, road to hell is paved with. But <laughs> <laughs> right, right. The road to hell is paved with the best intention. But it was, it was a, you know, we, we shot a film um, that we shot in Brazil in another country with lots of different very... Um, uh, established artists in many ways and very new artists in other ways and in a in a place where we were telling the story of maybe the most famous person in the world, Pele, and dealing with new actors, new directors. We were new producers, more or less. And, it, you know, I mean, doing business in another country, shooting in another country. I mean, it's a tough, tough thing to do. And you're, you're right. If we look back... Um, the lessons we learned and the things that happened and the way we, I feel like I could make any movie now. <laughs> like what, 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 you know, um, hmm. I guess my, my test for regret. Um, and sometimes I, it's emotional and you feel it, but then I try to intellectualize it and get rid of it. If it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, and that's, I'm a very, still a very thinking heady person. Mm -hmm. Um, but where I go is with what I knew then, can I realistically have expected myself to do better? Right. That's great. And if I can, then right. I have to ask, so why didn't I? Right. And how can I avoid feeling this way next time? Right. Oftentimes you find that, well, the answer is maybe. I don't really know. But it's not clear that only knowing what I knew on that day, I could have made a better decision or a better job or executed that better. Yeah, that's great because we evaluate ourselves based on who we are today. Yes. We evaluate our past based on what we know today, <laughs> which is totally unfair. Could you imagine if you evaluated your five-year-old self <laughs> yeah. from the point of view of your 35-year-old self? Yeah. You, you would, but that's a really great way to look back at things. Yeah, it's, great. that's what I try to do. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, emotions sometimes aren't as uh, intellectual as robot me wants them to be. <laughs> <laughs> right. Of course. Of course. But yeah. So let's talk about producing for a second, because I still think that word, there's many types of producers. Mm -hmm. I still think that word is, I, I still think they don't, we don't quite understand it. In fact, it, it wasn't until you know, maybe 50 years ago, I'd have to look it up that they even gave awards for producing. Like mm. it was just something that people did. Um, you know, to me in the most basic, basic of terms, producing is assembling everything together and making it all go, Yeah. you know? Um, but nowadays this word is very different and, and there are many different roles and people mm. call themselves a producer or they call themselves a whatever. But you have a unique position because you specifically entered in and you have a better understanding of the finance side of producing than just about anybody I know. And you also have a deep understanding of the practical, what they would call maybe creative side of producing. And I think it's rare that people have both. 
So we end up having what we call creative producers, and then we have financiers, and we have this kind of separation. But you hold this space where you understand both and are accomplished in doing both. So tell me what it means to be a producer from your point of view. Tell me how a movie is actually made. <laughs> in 30 seconds or less. In 30 or seconds or less. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, just give me the Cliff Notes version so that everyone's sitting at home and, and they see that movie in the theater. They don't realize it took four or five years to get it there, at <laughs> least. Yeah. Um, if it went well, it took four years. And I think people would be shocked to know that most movies don't make money. 90-something percent make no money. <laughs> well, um, what is a producer? The shortest answer I have is a project manager. Right. Um, but that's not every producer, as, you, mm-hmm. as you've stated. There's... <clears throat> There's kind of um, different credits that we give to different types of producers, but even that's not consistent. And every situation is specific. And so it's in a case-by-case basis what each of us end up being called mm-hmm, <laughs> on mm-hmm. screen. Yeah, it could be your best friend. You just want <laughs> to throw him something up there. But. Or, you know, sometimes the executive producer brought money or sometimes they represent one of the most important talent that got attached right. and they made the biggest phone call and, and the movie would never have been made without that right right and so i'm i have a hard time saying um how to value each contribution and what it's supposed to have mm-hmm. i what i do know is that without the contribution of a whole team of people none of these movies gets made that's true and there's usually one or a handful of producers that are actually project managers and on each movie. So this person either identified the story in the first place or got brought on um, to execute the actual movie making. Mm-hmm. The hiring of the people, the yes. finding of the money. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's there's also a, a position, you know, called line producer. Mm-hmm. And there's a history to the name, but in practice, this is like your plant manager, if you had a factory. Right. So they're actually doing the minutiae of the logistics of the day-to-day from planning to execution, mm-hmm. supervised and working together with this project manager type producer. Right. Where we build the budget and the schedule and we make sure that everything's going to work. Mm-hmm. And and uh, together with each of the specific departments. So as you put a movie together, you put a team of people into different different teams of people into different departments that are in charge of different areas of the film. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, the camera department led by the cinematographer, and there's a whole team under them. And there's another art department and set under which there's wardrobe and sets and props. And Mm -hmm. each, each of these departments coordinates through the line producer with the producer how much they need of each resource, including time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it all is meant to serve the vision that the filmmaker, the director, is providing the project. Now, that vision, too, is 
a team effort. Right. <laughs> and while the director is clearly the creative leader in that vision, it's collaborative. It's a collaborative process with the producer or the producers, and especially those who are creative producers, mm-hmm. to come up with the best version of that vision. And also, <laughs> and this is key, and where a lot of the tension comes from between director and producer, the um, achievable version right. of that vision. Right. So the director wants a helicopter, <laughs> and the producer says, um, "Let's let's cut the helicopter shot. <laughs> let's do something else." Yeah. So if you nobody has unlimited resources, mm-hmm. from the thousand dollar student short to the hundred million dollar studio franchise, right. nobody has unlimited resources, and everyone who is trying to achieve their best envisioned version of a script will have a tendency to um, require more resources than is available to them to accomplish that vision. Mm -hmm. Because we want to dream big. And actually, the producer's job is to encourage that in the first stage of the creative process. Mm -hmm. Because that's where you discover new ideas, by being bold and not limiting your thinking. Right. But then once you have all the great ideas, you also have to, you, you can either keep them and write about them, <laughs> or if you want to actually execute and make a movie, um, which I'm not saying is superior, but if that's what you want to do and you want to reach people in that visual medium, then you have to actually make the movie. And to make the movie, like I'm saying, you only have limited resources right. and to to go back on what we were discussing a couple of minutes ago, that doesn't mean the creative process is stunted. Limitation is opportunity. And so many times, famously um, on the movie Jaws, but so many times throughout history, (laughs) by having a limitation, the artistry then has to push its own boundaries and come up with better solutions that work within those limitations, within those boundaries. Like in Jaws, um, maybe what you're referring to is the fact that the shark that they had to play to play Jaws yeah. um, broke or yes. something, and they only could shoot with it for like a day or something <laughs> ridiculous. Yes. But if I... And so they ended up implying the shark in, right. for many of the scenes they had planned to see it. Which actually became scarier than seeing <laughs> the shark because you're, you're feeling the anticipation of the shark. And this is something that they came up with on the fly. Right, right. Which would, they would not have discovered had they ha- would not have discovered had they not if they had endless resources and exactly whatever the power of limitations on the creative process is um, part of maybe would you say is that part of what the producers there for as far as creatively goes yes and help figure out those solutions yeah I think so and so now can we talk about something really boring? <laughs> but I think people actually sort of... Give, give me the one-minute, two-minute sexy version <laughs> of film finance. Now, I say this, and I know there's people listening who... This is... This, I don't know. Maybe this, this is an interesting thing because I think what people have to realize, and something I learned, is that a movie, like every other bit of business, doesn't get made unless there's money. And so 
so much of making a movie is figuring out the money. Yeah. And movies can fall apart the day before because somebody can get nervous and go, I don't want to put money into that movie. Very briefly, um, can you describe what it is to finance a movie? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people <laughs> that are required to do each do a very specific job, many of which require deep expertise mm. to come together in order to make a movie. Right. Now, multiplying even a meager salary <laughs> times a large number of people and then also paying for all the resources they need to make their jobs, like if you're building a house for the main character or if you're renting a house as a location, each has its own expense, its own logistics. It requires a lot of money to make a movie. Right. <laughs> and, and therefore, it's, you're looking for a large amount of money. And so there is only some places that have so much money, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Typically... Um, the institutions, the companies, the people that have enough access to capital that they can invest in film are relatively sophisticated when it comes to finance. Because they have the capital, they're used to evaluating investments and have a portfolio. And <laughs> mm -hmm. so film finance... It's, even though it's something that continues to change as the industry evolves and um, the, there's different models, the what I call the traditional model, which is traditional for my age, and I'm mm -hmm. sure those that came before me are like, oh, that's the new model. Yeah, <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> um, it's very similar to real estate, mm -hmm. where you have a script, which is kind of like a, a architectural plan, mm -hmm. and you want to build a movie, build a building, you pre-sell some of the apartments in this building to then debt finance the construction of the building. Right. In the same way, traditionally, you would sell the rights to distribute the movie in certain countries and use those sales to get a bank loan. So you use them as collateral mm -hmm. to get a bank loan to pay for a large portion of the movie. Right. Beyond that... <laughs> Um, there's almost always required some investor, some group to also take a leap of faith with you and make an investment that is not collateralized by anything other than the expectation of future sales. Right. Equity. <laughs> Equity. Yeah. <laughs> so, Which means you have ownership of the film, though. You it does. So it means that if the film is successful after all the loans have been paid off at whatever interest rates those loans were at, you get your money back, and then you get the biggest portion of the film's profits. Right. And you only split it with the people who worked on the film and the other investors who took equity positions of high risk like you did. Mm -hmm. So it's a very high-risk, high-reward scenario for those investors. With the caveat that the reward is rare. 
It's very <laughs> rare. <laughs> but and I think people don't realize that. I think people see a movie making four hundred million dollars, yeah. you know, or something, and they go, "Oh, let's get in the movies." And it's like, I went to Arc. I went to a major theater, ArcLight, in in Los Angeles, and I saw Black Panther, which I loved. And I'm looking at the ArcLight theaters, and they've got all the movies that they're showing. Yeah. There were 14 screens mm-hmm. showing four movies. <laughs> so they're showing, yeah. you know, three screens have the same movie, four yes. screens. And you go, there were hundreds of thousands of movies made last year. Four of them yeah. are in the theater. Yeah, about 600, I would say, like professionally made movies get made every year in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And with budgets above a million dollars or or above think, or above two hundred thousand dollars that aren't student films and aren't home projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, my understanding is that approximately two thirds of those lose money to their equity investors, which. At first, sounds like, oh my God, how would anyone invest in this? Yeah. <laughs> but if you, you can also think of movies as startups. And if you look at Silicon Valley and the startup VC culture, their success rate is not better. <laughs> in fact, it's, it's quite comparable. Well, what are you starting up? You're, you're, it's, it's somebody investing in the artistry and getting behind the director. And, you know, what, what's the, expectation in that startup well people invest in film for many different reasons Mm -hmm. and sometimes there is an expectation that they must recoup all of their money sometimes there isn't necessarily because that's not the priority right sometimes it's part of a an effort for pr sometimes it's Mm -hmm. a brand that puts money into a movie because they feel it's good advertising for them Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a person that wants to be affiliated with the arts or is a huge fan of... It's like a patron. and Exactly, a patron of the arts, is a huge fan of the director, is a huge fan of the actor. There's, there's just so many reasons why people invest in film. Um, one of them is also to be cool. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. you, know, and, you do get to go to pretty cool parties. And on this surface level to, to be around all the personas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And be able to tell everyone that you're a part of it. Right. And... I think that attracts as many people as anything else mm-hmm. in into this particular industry. But um, I don't believe independent film could exist. It it would crumble without the um, financial incentives from all the territories and states and countries that provide some tax rebate or other grant type programs. Because without those, on average, the entire independent film industry would lose more than 30% of the money it spends. Right. Which is why everyone might shoot in Georgia right now or somewhere, you know, I'm from Atlanta and everybody tells me, well, they're making all the movies here. And I'm like, well, they are because yeah. they offer a really great tax credit yes, to do so. It's, it's quite competitive between states and between countries mm-hmm. to try to attract production to their locales and bring money to their local economy from all these movies that hire so many people and use pay for so many of their local resources. So it, it's meant to activate their local economies. And so in return, 
they'll they'll provide these incentives, which actually keep us going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Black Panther shot in Atlanta, and I just read, or they shot some in Atlanta, and I just read that it brought eighty nine million dollars to the city's economy. That yeah. is insane. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Okay, let's switch gears here. Because as much as I can get, as much as we can have a finance boner, let's let's talk about other things. Yeah. You spent some time in Florida. I did. <laughs> you did. See, this you're sitting in the hot chair because I know about you. Um, one of the things that I think is so interesting about the way your mind works, as a as a feeling person, as a philosopher, as an artist, as a scientist, as a business person, is that. You have a unique appreciation for the things that cannot be explained. Does this make sense? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Into all the weird stuff, <laughs> which I love. I think we make too much about what can be explained. Mm. We preference that, and we, we, we will preference the explicable to the detriment of the things that are inexplicable, mm. which is what maybe 90% of our experience in life is, <laughs> inexplicable. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, <clears throat> how that shapes your world, your understanding of the metaphysical world, the understanding of, of the things you can't explain and, and how as a scientist and a business person, but also as an artist and a feeling person, how you navigate through the things that you can't explain. <laughs> what does it mean to be alive? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, we're back. <laughs> One of the things I was saying with what it means to be alive is it may not be reducible, which is a strange way of saying we don't know. <laughs> right. That's also possible. Right. And personal, my personal belief when it comes to spirituality and religion is that from our limited perspective, from this life and this physical experience we don't know and we can't know mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we can't know what happens after we pass right and we can't know if there is a god or not we can't really right, right. But we can choose of course to believe one version or another version from one place or another place mm -hmm. and on that i would say that in order to walk, this is kind of weird, but here we go. <laughs> In order to this walk, is when you know, turn it up, everybody. This is getting a, good. A path that you feel is lit by the sun that that is that the sun is shining on, and that makes you feel warm, and where you can see in front of you, and you feel good about. Mm -hmm. You don't need to see the sun to know that your path is being lit by it. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Absolutely. And I take um, nothing away from those who choose to walk that path, and I respect that mm -hmm, mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I have a really hard time with the concept of um, actually with just choosing to have faith. Mm -hmm. I have a really hard time with it. What's a, what do you mean? What does that mean? A hard time because it, it conflicts with your intellect or because it um, seems uh, scary or difficult or pointless or what's the nature of the difficulty 
it's definitely scary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess my my tendency is to rely a lot on empiricism and what I can test and prove. And so it's not just God, right? It's not just religion. Anything that I have, that I'm being asked to have faith on, but I don't have any evidence for, mm-hmm. I have a really hard time with choosing faith. Right. And I guess um, part of me is afraid to be wrong, maybe. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Part of me is just afraid to make that decision, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, oh, man. I, I ask a lot about, you know, when I'm working with anybody, with artists or something, I the, the word faith is tough, and there's lots of beautiful definitions and mm-hmm. meanings for it, but we have associated this word in such a religious context that it's it's almost hard to separate them. And yeah. religious people tend to have faith in mm-hmm. something, but faith can exist apart from a religion in many ways. I mean, all the way down to the fact that you might put gas in your car today, you know, which is yes. kind of the, the example people throw around sometimes. If you put gas in your car, it means you have some sense that tomorrow is going to happen. <laughs> so that's right. an act based in faith. But um, I, I've, I've, I ask a lot about it uh, to people sometimes because um, to me, it is how we shape our relationship to the things we don't know. Yeah. How we handle the unknown. And I didn't really get there. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm actually thinking the, the example of putting gas in your car is very reliant on empiricism. Oh, because yeah. we know how the car works, or at least someone knows who someone built it. Knows. <laughs> <laughs> and we've experienced that our parents put gas in their cars and they worked. Mm-hmm. And we do it. We did it last time and it worked. Right. And then as far as there being a tomorrow, there was a yesterday. And what science knows about the earth and the sun and the Milky Way, we have every expectation mm-hmm. that there will be a tomorrow. But whether we will experience and need the gas, <laughs> need the gas That's tomorrow. true. We don't know if we'll have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. We don't know in today's political climate if there will be a war. Like, we don't know, right? Yeah, right, right. And not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... There's a reasonable expectation. Yeah, there is, yeah. It's it's a little bit different to me. So if I would compare it more to, um, like if if there is a soulmate or mm-hmm. a true mm-hmm. one true love in the world for each person, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you can choose to have faith in. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily have verifiable evidence for. Right, right, right. And that's something else that I. When I was younger, I... Or experiential evidence. Mm-hmm. That's what you mean by verifiable evidence. I mean, you. we all know a couple that from the outside looks perfect mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. have been together forever. But from the inside, there is, like, I don't know. We don't actually know. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just because it happened once or just because it happened a million times doesn't mean that that's the rule because the percentage of people who are together for a long time is not more than half, is it? I don't know. I don't think. But <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask. But it's definitely not close to everyone, right? Right. It's not right. close to everyone that finds someone 
found someone that is forever. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so I don't know why we're talking so much about <laughs> love right now, but, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm using it as a comparison to faith in God. It's faith in uh, finding your someone. Yeah, yeah. Because that's also something that um, I don't know if there's someone out there or I don't, my, my version, which could change and is as probably as wrong as all my previous versions, but my current version mm-hmm. is that um, there's, there's compatibility and as long as you're compatible enough and you're in the right place in your life and so is the other person, then it's a good, it's a good thing to get together. And it's the most you can hope for. But (laughs) you, I know, all of us, um, we know there's a mystery. Yeah. We know whether it's the mystery of consciousness. Yes. um, As opposed to biological life or whether it's the mystery of this feeling, this love, or which can be explained, of course, with with, uh, maybe chemical things in the body or neuroscience. uh, Neuroscience. But... There, there does seem to be a mystery. There's something inexplicable, yeah. and I, I know there is a point at which we try to explain it. But I understand that there, at a certain point, we go, like, for example, you're holding the little dog right now, who recently <laughs> uh, doesn't usually like people, and she just jumped in your lap, and this is inexplicable. <laughs> <laughs> there must be something, no. but. Um, <laughs> She's never met a Peruvian before. She's never met a Peruvian before. So how do we understand the things we cannot explain, the mystery of it? And even if we were to talk about film investment, Hmm. there comes a point where the data is solidified and Hmm. you still decide, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Um, (laughs) How do we grapple with the unknown, even um, even if someone can explain it? It may be unknown to you. How do we... Or how do you deal with the things that are unknown? If it's unknown to me, which is most things, yeah, right. <laughs> um, then when I encounter it, I try to decide if it's knowable. Mm, mm. From what I know now, is this knowable? And if it's knowable and I am interested, then I try to learn. Right. But there are many things that are not knowable like these questions of, of um, faith that we're discussing, you, mm-hmm. at least I think, you can't really know the answer. You, it's, right. If it's, you did, it wouldn't be faith. It's not, <laughs> it's not just that I don't, it's unknown, it's unknowable. Right, that's a big difference. That's great. And when it's unknowable, it's about accepting it. Right. It's about um, life is a mystery, <laughs> it's not meant to be explained. Does that bring you a sense of calm or does that bring you a sense of anxiety? Um, it changes on different days. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you were referring to my time in Florida and mm-hmm. I was a graduate student in oceanography and sustainable science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got <clears throat> my master's while I was there during the day. Mm-hmm. Right. And during the night. <laughs> you studied the dark art. <laughs> I, I found myself studying metaphysics, mm-hmm. comparative religion, esotericism, <laughs> and 
so the occult, the unknown, I became very curious to find out if, um, if any unexplained phenomena is actually, is it real? Is it made up? Are these people crazy? Do they know what they're talking about? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I went in for about a year and a half. I dedicated most of my evenings to this pursuit. And I found peace once I concluded that I can't know, which is weird, because I've always been very curious and I need to know the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But before I started on that journey, my answer was, were just biochemical um, organisms. There is no, there is no spirit, there's nothing after death. full-born atheist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> And through this journey, I got not just enough arguments, because it's not just logic, right, but right, I also right. had enough experiences mm. that it shook my certainty in atheism, where I now have become agnostic. Mm-hmm. And I didn't stick around for some reason much past that point. Mm. I what felt, was that point like for you? I don't want to interrupt. What was that point like for you? That's a major shift. It's a bit gradual. <laughs> okay, so know? it's not a word. <laughs> I'm teasing. But, yeah. but, I, but one day I realized that I'm no longer an atheist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen one day, but I came to the realization on a day. Mm-hmm. And I think it was after I was initiated into a... healing art called Reiki. Mm-hmm. It's a Japanese healing art form where you place your hands over someone and you allow yourself to be a channel of universal energy through you onto them. And by focalizing and channeling that energy to that person, it allows that additional energy to restore balance in their body. Mm-hmm. At least that's the teaching. Mm-hmm. And you experienced that. I experienced that first as, a, as receiving it and then as the healer. Mm-hmm. And there was really there is really no logical or scientific explanation that I know that um, is a better explanation than the one. they give from mm-hmm. their place of faith. Mm-hmm. If there was, would that make you re-question everything? Or would that speak to the organizational ability of that universal energy? I think it's an unknowable... Mm-hmm. The answer to that question falls into unknowable right. from our limited physical experience. And that's why I don't think I can go back to being an atheist. Mm, and I, okay. I very much respect religion, religious people, atheists, all sides. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a right to come to their own conclusions, to make their own decisions. But I don't think I can go back. Right. Because it would, it would position you in a, a place of denial of these questions or it would... It just... I don't think I can be certain again. So I can't be certain 
that the answer is yes, and I can't be certain that the answer is no. Right. My answer is I don't know. Right. Now, it's, it's also possible that some years ago, I thought I would never stop being an atheist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, while today I don't believe I can go back. Right. You know. You never know. Yeah, but those those were really interesting times. And I'll say it wasn't what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. I found... So there's, there's a lot of happenstance in my story. Mm-hmm. Coincidence. Um, and maybe a lot of the people that are more deeply involved in that world would not call it coincidence. I was going to ask you if you, really, <laughs> if you really thought it was coincidence or not. Um, they call it synchronicity mm-hmm. um, or just there's laws of attraction. And, but when I was, I was a bit depressed and disillusioned in my science program and there were some personal things going on at the same time, I decided to find myself some hobbies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was the hobby you stumbled upon? <laughs> <laughs> well, I started playing tennis and a couple other things, but I was in a deep dive into googling things (laughs) (laughs) you can get lost and one thing led to another and i landed on this page that was called the college of metaphysical studies Mm -hmm. and it happened to be the same initials as my science school cms (laughs) (laughs) so you could still tell people you were at cms and they would never know and exactly i was there a day and night and (laughs) And I started reading their website. It was really interesting, but to me at the time, also pretty weird. And I decided to look up where they were because I was just on a random web page. Mm-hmm. It happened to be that they had a physical school. And it happened to be that that school that I had randomly clicked on through many Google searches was 15 minutes away from where I was living. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> And it could have, you know, it's it's the internet. It could have been anywhere in the world. But because it was so close, I decided to go. Mm-hmm. And it was, it had been like two weeks that I hadn't left my apartment other than to go to work and school. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a, quite an adventure. <laughs> and I would go, I was living five, six blocks away from where I studied and worked at the university. So I would walk and I... So taking out the car, it was like a whole thing. Yeah, I was like, what do I do? <laughs> Talk about a leap of faith. <laughs> I show up, and I was expecting, um, I guess, strangeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, um, like walking eccentricism. into Hogwarts. Yeah. And instead, it was a very, I, I, I would even say, plain-looking, um, almost like a doctor's office Ooh, <laughs> place yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it had a big room full of chairs and they had a little make do chapel on the other side and it was all kind of just you know a cheap real estate uh kind of like it, it would you would expect this place to be um uh, a low-end shopping center maybe right 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 <laughs> And full of all kinds of people, religious people, non-religious people, or just yeah, full of seekers. Full of seekers is a good way to put it. And I, I was, I, 
I went on the first day of one of their classes so I could sit in and then choose if I wanted mm-hmm. to enroll afterwards. Mm-hmm. And the teacher ended up becoming a mentor to me for over a year. Mm-hmm. And all he did was change my life. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but right away I started to realize and notice that these people ain't crazy. <laughs> you know, there's, it's, when I try to talk to some of my science colleagues about this place, the first reaction was rejection and ridicule of the place, mm-hmm. which is normal. Mm-hmm. Um, which then st- the people that chose to listen a little longer, uh, that changed quickly into curiosity and interest. Right, right. And that's what that's the transition that happened for me during my Google search. <laughs> I transitioned from judgment to curiosity. Right. And I think that's a good way to come back out of the, this Florida story mm-hmm. because um, that's a transition that I think we can use more of. Right. And whenever someone doesn't agree with how we think or what we do, or how we live our lives, or our profession, or our opinions, we often, our, our initial reaction, it's almost automatic, is to judge them back. Mm-hmm. And if instead you allow yourself to be curious about why that's the case, mm-hmm. and where these people are coming from, I think that leads to actual connection, mm-hmm. and understanding, and meaning, and we're back to what does it mean to be alive? To be alive. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you a last question, because you're uniquely positioned to answer it, I think. What can religious people of all faiths, of all religious practices, Eastern, Western, all of it, what can they learn from an atheist? Uh, from an atheist, the way they see the world, and what can an atheist learn from a religious person? I think this is a kind of a hard question. <laughs> but um, let's see. I know a lot of atheists. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there is a... Um, there is a skepticism mm-hmm. that I think is healthy. Right. That is very strong in atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, in people who are who are atheists. And this skepticism can be very useful in in life overall and in avoiding certain problems <laughs> with your life. And um, That would be healthy for religious people to embrace. I think embrace. there is a level of skepticism that is healthy. Right. Even if you choose to have faith in a particular religion, it's, it's still healthy to have some skepticism of the imperfect people mm-hmm. that are passing on what may be a perfect set of beliefs. Right. Yeah. And it's so true. Um, The religious community in all faiths, all different practices, um, a lot of trauma comes from their lack of skepticism and perhaps the authority in that that position. And and so a lot of abuse can happen or they just take things without thinking about it. And yes, it does seem like uh, uh, someone who is atheist, who has that healthy sense of needing to know that needing Mm. to evaluate, needing to think through something would be a would would come as a great benefit to many people who are religious. Yes. Now, what do and, you think? And then the other on way the other way around, I think um, learning to choose faith is also very useful, and especially for your own um, 
Learning to choose faith meaning learning to accept that certain things are unknowable. Yes. Right. Yeah, so again, I'm when I say faith, it doesn't mean Religious. that you believe in Christianity. Yeah, right, 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 right. It can, but it doesn't just mean that. Right. Um, when, when I accepted for myself that there are some of these things were unknowable, there was a piece that came along at the end of that crisis mm-hmm. that... Um, before that, it was an anxiety that I, why can't I know? <laughs> right. And once I accepted that it's, that's just how it is. I can't know. It's not me and it's not lack of ability and it's not lack of trying. It's, it's kind of the cards we've been dealt. Mm-hmm. Um, that brought some peace for me. And then, um, and then there's, of course, many of the values that are taught in most, if not all, of the religions of the world, certainly the primary, most... Mm-hmm. Um, the wisdom that comes through. Yes, so. and, you know, do unto others on all of these great ideas that... But an atheist... That an atheist can have, can have of, of course, course, already. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's worth um, going through and learning more about... And just because you don't have faith doesn't mean that that religion can't teach you more than you already know. Mm. So it sounds like you're saying it might be beneficial for the uh, religious people to learn from the atheist, to be more skeptical Mm. in healthy ways, and for the atheist perhaps to learn from the religious people to be more open in other ways. Yeah, and then also... Mm. when you're looking for a connection, when if, if you're striving for oneness and for community, even something as deep and profound as religion, on in some way is also part of the persona. And I don't mean to be insulting when I say that at what, all. No, no, no. What do you mean? What do you mean? What, who I am mm-hmm. is and who we each are there is some base level to that mm-hmm. that is not defined by our job. Right. It's not defined by our sexual orientation right. or our country of origin or our religion. Right. Yeah. I, no, I think that's absolutely and, correct. Yeah. And so oftentimes we define, um, which we, we define this process of communicating across an aisle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that sounds very much like politics, but you 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 want to connect with someone who is the other. You right. want to connect with oh, I'm an atheist. They're not. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Just framing it that way, I think, is less conducive to healing. I have totally, absolutely, and so absolutely, and so what can they learn from each other is that they're actually not that different. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. That's great. That's great. That's great. That's a great thing. That's great. And so I think there's nothing else to talk about. I think we have figured this whole thing out. <laughs> Just like we're not that different from the celebrity. Yeah. You know, the non-celebrity is not that different from the celebrity. Mm-hmm. Malcolm Gladwell is not that different from Ben Mathis. Malcolm Gladwell, I, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> we, we do love you and appreciate and you. And we're sorry we didn't come tell you in the coffee shop today. Um, but thank you so much for being here Uh You know, we, you and I have got stories and it's (laughs) awesome. And I hope we get to make many, many more because I know you and I are just getting warmed up and we haven't 
rung the metaphysical bell yet. <laughs> oh, metaphysical, metaphorical bell. <laughs> there you go. We may be ringing the metaphysical <laughs> bell. We don't know. But the metaphorical bell, we have not rung. It is not over. And um, you've been a huge influence in my life. And so thank you for letting me get on that ride with you. And thank you for sharing your ride with us. Mr. Benjamin Mathis, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You are a great influence on my life. And I'll say that the things that I've seen you be great at, I've never seen anyone be greater at doing anything else than you oh, are great wow. at doing the things you are great at. Wow, thank you. Whoa, that's huge. I'm going to take that in for a second. I'll cry. All right, thank you. <laughs> Bye. Well, that was one of the bigger compliments I had ever received from anybody, and it did take me a second to take it in. Uh, it's funny how sometimes compliments are hard to receive. I think that says something about the, the way we think about ourselves, but it was very gracious of him to say that. And uh, that was one of my favorite conversations because not only have I experienced him uh, and his intellect and his feeling and, and the way he thinks about things, which you can see is very complex and, and very nuanced, but I've actually seen him practice those things. I have been in the trenches with him uh, in very difficult situations, making difficult decisions. I've seen him face the consequences of his mistakes. I've seen him face the victories and I've seen him face uh, celebrations and I've seen him in difficult situations. And everything that he talked about today, he works very hard to implement into his life, which for me, that, that puts him in the top 1% of people in the world. It's so much of what we think and see and experience about the world, but if it doesn't change the way we treat others, if it doesn't change the way we relate to ourselves and the way we behave in the world, then who cares what we think? So I love seeing uh, the way he navigates through a very difficult industry, which is the film industry, and somebody who has has been up and has been down and has had to make difficult decisions and has learned and grown from each and every one. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I did. So on behalf of myself and our unbelievable producer, Thomas Youngerberg, uh, this is the Herd Podcast in our second season. And we're working very hard to bring you uh, interviews from influencers, from thought leaders, and from people who are really shifting the way the world is uh, experienced, the way we're experiencing the world and the way we're seeing the world. There's so much going on. And in this season, I'm working very hard to get to the people who are shaping that experience and ask them the question that matters most. What does it mean to be alive? Thanks for being with us.